0: Today's read, Midnight, A gangster Love Story by Sister Soldier. Chapter 14, Recruiters. Late by half an hour or so, I came up on the back side of the high school, surprised. The entire parking lot was filled with cars. I knew something out of the ordinary had to be going down because the cars were mostly expensive wearing a fresh wash and wax. Even the tires glistened with armor all. The crazy shit was how nobody parked within the yellow lines that outlined each space. Instead, people were parked however the fuck they wanted to. The kitted-up BMWs, Jeep Wranglers, Audis, Camaros, sobs and motorbikes, both Kawasaki's and the dirt bikes, looked impressive under the spotlight beaming from the lamppost Parked sideways was the whip that caught my eye and made my jaw drop it was the only porsche parked on the lot the color of the exterior was buttermilk i walked closer to check it out the interior was cream colored The seats were soft, buttery leather with gold piping. It was brand new. The 959 PSK, which I knew from reading the car mags, was so exclusive that Porsche only made 200 of them to sell around the entire world. My face was pressed almost to the glass, and the dashboard of the Porsche was so pretty and high-tech. It looked like a small private plane instead of a car. The wooden stick shift was waxed, not even one smudge or fingerprint to stain it, as if no one even drove it here. The speedometer went up to 300 miles per hour. I imagined myself in this high-powered, high-speed monster hugging a mountain road in Morocco doing 120 miles per hour. I laughed, thinking I probably needed a fucking pilot's license to drive this machine. On closer inspection, I saw the monogrammed insignia embossed into the driver's headrest. RS were the initials. This car had such a clean look. No junky attachments, lime green fog lights, or press-on letters on the outside like I had seen some gaudy players do. As I stood up and stepped back, I thought to myself, if I had the money to do it, this is exactly how I would do it. It was deep to me how you could always tell one man from another by his style. And it was rare for a man to break from doing a version of the exact same thing as every other man and instead do something original of an even higher quality, something smarter and better. When a piece of light hits a real piece of gold, it glistens for less than one second of time. I caught the flash of genuine gold, a small but life-sized pair of dark, solid gold baby shoes dangling from a six-inch solid gold link chain hanging from the rear-view mirror. I was always on point about gold and jewels and their true content and value. My father consistently selected the best of everything and pointed out and kept away from the junk. I was impressed with this dark-colored 24 karat gold and the craftsmanship of the shoes, even down to the detail of the gold shoelaces. I had seen all kinds of pendants and pieces, good and bad, but I had never seen a man mount baby shoes on a chain. Somehow I knew for sure this ride belonged to a man. There were no feminine things to give it away. Napkins, purses, lipsticks, hairpins, small pieces of wrapped candy, not even diapers or a baby seat. Parked next to a Cherry Beamer M3 with two hairy cloth dice on the dashboard, the style and build of the Porsche blew every other whip off the lot. Music and loud talking was coming from the front of the school building. When I wound my way around there, I ran into hundreds of people standing in loose-formed lines and tightly drawn circles, waiting. Baselines lines and beats, do-rags, cornrows and bouncing balls, thick bodies, titties and tight clothes. The niggas was out. I pushed my way through the dark crowd looking for Amir and Chris. As more people arrived, I figured I better get my position on the line and wait to find my boys once we got inside the gym and into the light Tyreek had said basketball tryouts but this looked like an organized and advertised basketball game was about to take place with some professionals and well-known ballers and their devoted fans easily I could have bounced but because of me my friends were out here somewhere in the mix and besides money was in the air I could feel it Somebody rolled up, blasting Just Ice's joint, cold, getting dumb. The crowd jerked, excited from the beat. People started pushing and pressed up against one another. Six big bouncer-type giants finally threw open the three gym doors and everybody tried to bum-rush Brooklyn style. The big dudes formed a wall and made everybody, Back up! Back up! They made people walk in one I was clocking their procedure real close. I needed to know if they was conducting a search or not, or if they had handheld metal detectors or what. It turned out they wasn't. I knew then there would be a gym full of guns, which was probably for the best. When everybody is packing, people are better at holding their positions, cautious of the consequences. Chaos usually breaks out when only one crazy cop or backward nigga is armed, and the rest of the people are sitting ducks at his mercy. Walking in, I heard dudes on the line talking about how they got callbacks from the first tryouts and how tonight was the final cut. I put two and two together and understood what was up. Inside, the majority of the people filled in the bleachers situated on either side of the gym. Everybody who planned to ball remained on the gym floor. That made about 200 teenage boys on the floor. No bullshit. I spotted Amir and Chris. They was way up the line. I was all the way in the back. I stayed in position knowing that to join or cut the line up front was to draw attention to myself and set it off. Tyreek appeared in sweats with a whistle and a couple of big guys standing at his sides. "'Line up for layups!' he shouted. "'These youth must have known and respected him "'because they did exactly what he said. "'One by one, they took it to the hoops "'while the girls and some mothers jumped up and danced "'to celebrate this one or that one's skills. "'In the back, still waiting my turn, "'I was scanning the crazy crowd. "'I was bugging on how in this hot-ass gym "'there was groups of overdressed types in the bleachers.' one in a full-length rabbit fur, wearing sunglasses at night and indoors. Another one was wearing a full-length mink with a matching mink hat. It was winter outside, but summer in the gym, yet nobody wanted to take off or check their coats. A couple of grown-up cats playing the corners, dressed in suits and hard shoes, were watching us closely, like they were professional recruiters. But these were black cats from the hood who, if pushed, could probably get on the court and play a decent game themselves, not the official recruiter types. When ballers would miss the layup, lose control of the ball, or show sloppy style, Tyreek's big side niggas would sit them down on the floor and out of the way. By the time I got up, I figured I better just dunk it nobody would remember the last player of a group of over a hundred. I caught a little reaction from the crowd. After layups, we were tested on our jumpers, then our three-point shots. A lot of these cats were good, but even some of the good ones were choking under the pressure of performance, the crowd, and the critique. The long line was thinning out as dudes got sidelined by Tyreek's men. Amir and Chris were still standing. I wasn't surprised. With the three-point shots, they let us shoot the rock till we missed one. If you missed on your first shot, they gave you one last chance. I don't know what was feeding me. I wasn't sure that I could get paid from this shit, but I was trying my best. Maybe it was the crowd. Faces plastered with 100% approval and a joy so real They leaped out of their seats. For once, it wasn't hatred, stress, and put-downs. Black youths were actually cheering for one another. I hit 18 three-pointers before I missed one. It was easy for me. A real challenge would have been shooting the rock with my eyes closed, but that wasn't required. When I finally missed on shot number 19, Tyreek put his left hand in the air. Aye, aye,' he said, blowing his whistle and waving the spectators who had moved down onto the court back up into the bleachers. Just then, I noticed Amir's father chilling alone in the cut behind a group of men and up against the wall, looking serious and concentrating real hard. After the whistle, we got divided into teams. Nothing was thought out. Just the first five in the line on one team and the second five on the line on the next team, and so on. Each pair of teams was told to run a 10-minute full court game. Tyreek had the stopwatch. The game was over when a team scored 10 points, or when 10 minutes passed and the whistle was blown, whatever came first. Some of the suited money cats who were casually standing and sitting around the bleachers earlier were now standing around the perimeter of the court, reacting to to the rebounding, the handling, the flying, the masterful dribbling and passing so slick that for seconds the ball seemed lost somewhere. They seemed like a group of gamblers at a racetrack or at OTB waiting for the results to come in. For me, this was a crazy experiment. Just as we got wound up, it was all over. It's a wrap, Tyreek announced. The ball players who were still standing, Blood was pumping and hearts were still racing. Our eyes were wide open as we stayed on the floor, staring at one another and wondering what was next. My sweat was flowing into my blue Terry cloth headband. Instead of talking to the players, Tyreek hosted a meeting right on the court with the men from the sidelines. Their huddle was intense, their backs were blocking out anyone trying to look inward seemed like they were consulting one another and doing some arguing. It could have easily been mistaken for a big game with CeeLo. Whatever it was, we all could tell it was serious and knew to stay out their way. Soon, the girls started streaming down from the bleachers onto the floor. I drifted over to Chris and Amir. Somebody threw on Push It, a salt and pepper joint, and most of the crowd started dancing. About 20 minutes later, Tyreek started weaving in and out of the crowd, tapping dudes, saying either, I'm going to see you, I'm going to talk to you, you, over here, you, over there, step up, step out. Next time. Security began urging, directing, and pushing the crowd toward the exit. A couple of fights got instigated, then squashed immediately. Within 15 minutes, only the chosen players were left in the room with Tyreek and his men. They passed around a clipboard. We were asked to write down our names, telephone numbers, and addresses. We were told to meet here same time next week Friday for all the details. You little motherfuckers are Brooklyn's finest. Don't let it go to your heads. Practice Or the next man will jump in your spot. If you're still alive and free next week, you should be standing right here on the line, he said. From the look of things, these cats believed in Tyreek and whatever promises he might have made to each of them. No one gave him any back talk or static or attitude about him having wasted our time or the lack of information and follow-through. I figured. Maybe they all knew something that I didn't. I decided, even if Tyreek and them didn't do nothing for me, tonight was a good workout. Proof that me, Amir, and Chris, when compared to the rest, was no joke. Serious contenders on the court. Brooklyn's finest. Overall, I couldn't count it a loss. You didn't write your names down, brother, Amir said to me, smiling. You invite us. To some shit. Let us sign up and you don't sign, Chris added. They don't need my information. If I want to come next week, I'll just show up, I told them. What do you think we can get out of playing ball out here? Chris asked me. Don't sleep. We can get a lot out of it. This is part of the Hustlers League. Everybody knows that, Amir revealed. Hustlers League. Didn't you notice all them hustlers up in this spot? Even Crazy Eddie from the East was up in here. He's from around my way. You know him? Chris asked. Everybody knows him, Amir answered. Why didn't you say something? I asked Amir. I came here on your invite. I didn't know who you was dealing with until we got here. Besides, them motherfuckers is some real money makers. They saw how the three of us put it down in here. If they want us to play, they gotta pay, Amir said with complete confidence. I think it's dope they started up a Hustlers League youth division. Your pops passed through. Did you see him? I asked Amir. You fucking around? Amir asked me. Nah, I told him. Outside, the night breeze felt good. There were still clicks of kids standing out front playing the wall and the curb. We wasn't outside five seconds before a cluster of females started sweating us. Hey, in the green, one of the girls shouted. Amir had on green sweats. Neither of the three of us turned around. They calling us like we chicks, Chris said. Word, Amir agreed. We kept walking. Chris was bouncing his ball. Them girls were walking behind us close, talking so we could hear You play good, one of them said. Amir couldn't resist a compliment. He turned around to see what we was dealing with. Yeah, thanks, he answered the girl. Not you, him, a girl's voice said while the rest of them laughed. Chris stopped walking and dribbling and turned to look. Not you either, they laughed. It came clear that she was referring to me. What's your name? The girl asked i turned around but didn't say shit so she kept talking you kind of mean but i like it she said her girlfriends giggled to tell the truth i didn't like the reversal i didn't like the idea of chicks trying to mac us just flow with it amir said in a low tone nudging me in the side with his elbow chris agreed with amir's plan with just an excited smirk on his face we all three about faced and walked toward them. Everybody broke into small sets, walked back and sat on the stone wall outside the high school. You shy or something? The girl who picked me up asked me. Nah, I answered. I know that's right, cause you sure wasn't shy out on the court. She smiled. I did all right, I answered. No, you were the best. She smiled again, revealing pretty white teeth against the dark of the night and deep-dish dimples. "'Let me give you my number,' she said, digging into her pocket. She pulled out a half a piece of paper and a sharpie. "'What, you have been giving out your number all day?' I asked her, because that's what it looked like to me. "'No, I don't usually give out my number. "'Or if some boy pesters me, I'll give him the wrong number just to get him out of my face.' So what are you doing right now? I asked her. I'm giving you my number before you become famous. That way, I can say I knew him before he became a star. She laughed, then jotted down her number. Sign your name right here, she said, then turned her back to me and dropped her jacket from her shoulders. And put the date in case anybody try and say I didn't know you first. Come on, please sign it. She wasn't about to give up. I signed, midnight, across her back and put the date. I live right around the corner, she pointed. Ooh, and I gotta go. She she jumped up suddenly like she had to pee or something. I was supposed to be in the house by 11. I got three minutes. She ran off full speed like a track star. I watched her run. Her body was crazy. Jeans so tight. I don't know how she dashed dashed so free and fast. Amir's pops strolled up toward the wall where we were sitting, moving slow and cool like he usually does. He had a can of beer wrapped in a brown paper bag in hand. He didn't have to say nothing. Amir was off the wall and on his feet. Me and Chris followed him over to his pops, both of us probably thinking that us being there would help Amir out of whatever kind of trouble he was in now. The other girls in the bunch just slipped away, the way teens do when adults come around. They caught the vibe and quietly left. "'What you got in your pocket, son?' That's how he started the conversation with Amir. "'I got paper,' Amir answered. "'About $40.' "'What else?' his papa asked. "'What you mean? "'I got coins, but that don't count, right?' Amir smiled at his pops trying to break whatever serious vibe his father was delivering you out here dealing with the hustlers they got guns you got forty dollars and some coins his father just stared at him you out here with the girlies they ready you not ready you got a condom on you? he asked not right now Amir answered then laughed how about the two of you? The father redirected his questions to me and Chris. I got some money, Chris answered. I'm good, I answered, looking him in the eye the way my father taught me to do, no laughter. Let's go, his father told us. We walked to the train station, the four of us. That's how Amir's father was, an ex-hustler who had a good little run for a little while and stepped out the game with nothing but his life in his hands. Now he works two jobs And spends his free time catching up and cracking down on Amir. I never seen his pops yell. He wasn't that type. He just had his rules, about a thousand of them, each accompanied by a street tale. I'm not going to tell you not to chase pussy, but bag up your dick every time. If you want to smoke weed, come to me. I'll buy it. We'll smoke in the house. Don't try to buy it yourself. Don't smoke in the streets with nobody else. Stay in school until you graduate. Go to college. There's three type of men you gotta avoid at any cost. The police, the army recruiters, the hustlers. They all want your life, and that's all you got. At the train station, I asked Chris, what about the girls? Are they on 40 Deuce waiting for us to take them to the movie? Chris answered, no, they not there. I called it off. I told Amir we could, we could kick it with them girls some other time. Why bring them around a, hus- a hundred or more, more ball players? Do y'all think we could fight them all and win? Chris asked. We all laughed, even Amir's pops. We all went our separate ways. Riding on the train alone, I thought about what Amir's pops had to say. My head was cracking, just trying to think about all the shit every other adult had to say and how their advice never seemed to match up. Where I come from, all the adults are living and pushing the same beliefs and ideas and ways of living. In America, Every other motherfucker got his own plan, religion, opinion, and ideas. And like in the case of Amir and his father, their religion, ideas, and actions could all be three completely different things. They were five percenters who believed that the black man is God. When I first hooked up with Amir at the dojo, he said he was Muslim, but their idea of Islam and the Islam I knew and was born into were miles apart. I took the friend and left his religion and philosophy on the side. The same with Chris, his family is Christian. As long as he went to church, his religion was easy. In both cases, it seemed like neither of their beliefs required them to do anything, sacrifice anything or fight for anything. In fact, i never seen either one of them pray. Not in the morning, afternoon, or evening. Not when we were in deep trouble, not even before or after a meal. When they first saw me praying at the dojo, they walked up and interrupted. A few questions and a couple of laughs later, they never interrupted or allowed anyone else to interrupt me while I made prayer. It was bugged out, though. It seemed like they believed that praying was only something that I do, like it was part of my personality or something, not something required of all human beings in a civilized world. On the other hand, I liked that Amir and Chris had my back while I made prayer. In my country, we believed in that. We believed that men must pray, and while some men pray, some men must watch their back. The aroma of Sudanese coffee mingled with the scent of Uma's oils late that night when I arrived home. She was seated at her sewing machine in her turquoise-colored silk pajamas. Her thick hair wound into one long braid beginning at the top of her head and ending below her right shoulder. You seem victorious, she said to me in Arabic. Shower and then tell me all about it. I have a few important things to tell you, too. Naja was asleep on top of a huge, soft pillow on the floor, curled up like a snail in its shell. Yes, look at my little helper, Uma said. I picked my sister up and carried her to her bedroom. I wondered if she could really be in such a deep sleep that she could not feel herself being moved from one room to another, or laid gently on her bed and covered. Or was it that she was just enjoying the ride that most kids no longer receive when they are six or seven years old and considered too big to be carried? In the glow of a cinnamon candle, I sat beside Uma on the floor. My muscles were relaxed now, and I was feeling fresh and clean and calm from my hot shower. Tell me, Uma said. It's nothing, really. I tried out for a basketball team and was chosen. I am supposed to find out next week if there is any way to earn by participating. Why would anybody pay a young person to play basketball? Uma asked. It sounds strange, she added. No one would pay just anybody to play basketball. Unless they was great, I said smiling. Oh, I see, she laughed. The game needs me, I kidded her. Of course it does, she joked. Anyway, remember our Ethiopian client up in the Bronx? The lady whose family moved here from Israel? She asked. Of course, remember how long it took me to scrub that emerald green dye off your fingers after you custom designed her cloths? I reminded her and we laughed. Well, she liked my work and received so many compliments that she recommended me to a Sudanese co-worker of hers whose family has been living over here in America America, for some years. Their nephew is about to be married in some huge wedding and they require a wedding planner who knows and understands Sudanese tastes, customs, and traditions. There is a tremendous operating budget and a $10,000 commission for me if I supervise and coordinate everything, and also handle all of the aspects of design for the wedding, including of course, the garments. $10,000, I repeated calmly, but in disbelief. Thinking of how, since we arrived to America, except for a handful of elite clients, we had to earn every penny very slowly. And poor client or elite client, in every instance, we had to labor very hard. So far, Uma had done one dress here and another there, but this lump sum would bring in more revenue in one swoop than she would generate in six months time working at the factory. Also, I thought about how completing this wedding successfully would put us right up close to our financial goal of buying our own home and property and getting ghost from Brooklyn. What do you think? She asked me. I think that's great. Somebody finally recognized that your talent is incredible and almost impossible to find. No one else would work harder and do more for the amount they're offering. And even if they found somebody else to hire, their product would never be as authentic and attractive. If you give me their information on Monday, I'll call and set it up so I can collect at least 50% upfront as a deposit on your commission." 5,000 upfront. Do you think so? Definitely. If they're serious, they'll pay some upfront money like any other client. I'll handle it, I assured her. Then she got quiet. There is only one thing, she hesitated. We both sat in silence for some seconds. "'I know,' I paused. "'You're worried and not sure if you want to work with a Sudanese family. "'I know they will be your first Sudanese clients since we have been living here in America. "'They will ask too many questions and believe that since you are working for them, "'that you owe them the answers, right?' "'You are so smart,' she admitted. "'But you said... They have been living in America for some years, and we will be professionals. We will treat them nice. You will talk to the women about the art and designs and measurements of their dresses. I will speak and work with the men. When any other topic or something too personal comes up, you will do like the Americans and just tell them you have to go. Or we could charge them by the hour, and that will cut out all of the talking we had another good laugh. Uma gave me the name and telephone number for the uncle of the groom who was representing his brother's family. I would call him and confirm the business. Uma would do what she does best, make everything unbelievably beautiful. After our late night prayer together to make up for the one I missed today, I raised my forehead from the floor and went to my bedroom. Seconds later, Uma reappeared. What about the girl, she said sweetly. Then there was a long pause. Akimi, I asked, already knowing. That one, she said, confirming. I am supposed to meet her aunt and uncle at their family business tomorrow. Inshallah, she said, meaning if God is willing. Then she seemed lost in a thought as she leaned against my door. You cannot go empty-handed to her relatives. You know this, right? She asked softly. Yes, Uma, you're right, I answered. She moved from my door and returned a little later with her hands full, just as I began drifting into sleep. Give these gifts to her aunt and uncle on behalf of our family. It's not much, yet they may enjoy them. I'll wrap them for you. Don't forget to take them with you in the morning. I'll remember, I assured her. She switched the lights off and stood in the darkness. It seemed like her words floated on the air. Now that you are becoming a man, things will be more complicated than they have ever been, she said. I did not really understand specifically what she meant. You will have strong urges and feelings pulling you in every way, but you should not become a servant to your desires, she said. words cutting through the darkness before their true meaning could begin to sink into my tired mind. She continued, a woman is more than a powerful feeling or unforgettable taste and a man should not try to eat from every dish. A good woman is a jewel from Allah for which a man must pay a heavy price. Be very careful. She closed my door soon I heard her sewing machine start up again. Her words were like a dish of cold water on my sleepy face.